So we're on the House of Omri this week. We did the Samaritans last week. Uh, the House of Omri, a lot of that Omri, then his son Ahab. So that's really what we're going to be talking about a lot today. So we got the House of Omri. And here's our objectives that you'll see going through in your outline. Number one, border security, which ought to be a topic we talk about with our country. The showdown, that's going to be Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And then the vineyard with Naboth's vineyard and then Ahab's doom being foretold. So kind of going through the life of Ahab uh, as we go through this house of Omri. So we're going to start here with border security. And I always like to have a timeline to kind of know where are we at in world history. So around 1000 BC, you have King David. And that's the start of what the Bible calls the kingdom. Uh, and it starts with David, and it goes through different nations have it. That's in Daniel's statue and, and the outline of things. But King David and then Solomon, they had the united kingdom, and then it splits after them. So after Solomon, you have the split, Israel in the north, and then Judah with Jerusalem down in the south. So Omri is the king up in the north. And then his son Ahab takes over. And then the north, which is called Israel, they t- are taken captive by Assyria in 722. And then they're repopulated by non-Israelites. And then you have three different times where Babylon comes and takes captives from the south, Jerusalem, Judah. And so that's kind of what we outline of what we went through last week. Today we're going to be focused here on Omri going to his son Ahab. And these guys were Samaritans. So at this stage... What nationality are they? Where did they descend from? They're Jews. Uh, is that here? Uh, so they're Jews. Uh, they're Israelites. They're from Abraham. Okay, so that's who they are now. They import Baal worship. It's later, after they're taken captive, that the Israelites are moved to Assyria, and then it's never uh, Jews or Israelites anymore. It's other people up in the north. So 1 Kings 16, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri becomes a king in the north in Israel. And this is going to be just a little review. And he built Samaria. So Omri built Samaria. Now Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. And you see this refrain several times of the kings of the north. Acted more wickedly than all who were before him. So they get worse and worse and worse. So here you see the kingdom. You were divided. We have the north. This is called Israel. Of course, these are Israelites down here, but it's called the South or Judah, with Jerusalem as their capital. So the capital in the north was Terza. Then Omri moved it when he bought the hill uh, from Shemer and then named it Samaria. He now moved the capital of the north to Samaria, and that was a good move. It's up on a hill, so it's better to fortify. It's better for trade and economic commerce, and it's better uh, for military. So he actually makes a smart move, moving it over here to Samaria. Then Omri dies, and Ahab, his son, becomes king. Ahab, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil more than all who were before him. So you see, they're getting worse and worse and worse. So this is now Ahab. So we're going to look at Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16, and Chronicles has a lot of the same stories as they go parallel tracks. And as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Ahab went and served Baal. Went and served. He doesn't stay. He goes and seeks out Baal worship. He seeks him out and worships Baal. So he, Ahab, erected an altar for Baal 
at the house of Baal, which he built. So notice what he does. He goes out to find Baal and then imports him actively by building an altar for him in Samaria. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings who were before him. This is Samaria. So it's still Jews up there, still Israelites. Uh, but now the Samaritans are importing Baal worship. And of course, there's Asherah, the female goddess, a consort of Baal. Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. Number one, Ahab married Jezebel, thus importing Baal worship into Samaria. Ahab married Jezebel, importing Baal worship into Samaria. So here you see there's Samaria, here's Judah, and this is the Phoenicians, the best navy of the time. Tyre has an island city and a mainland city. Tyre and Sidon together is the, the centerpiece of the Phoenician empire. Okay, so that's the Phoenicians. And where, do the, where does Sidon come from? Ham. So his son Canaan was the one cursed in his deal with Noah. And Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. That's where the Hittites come from. So Canaan, a lot of their land is what the Israelites took over in the promised land with Joshua and Caleb. And there's Sidon, where do you think the name got it, uh, the town got its name? And then Ethbaal is one that really incorporates Tyre and Sidon in together, uh, fortifying them. So here you have the divided kingdom. You have Judah on the south, you have Samaria in the north. So there's Samaria built by Omri, Ahab's father. There's Tyre, Ethbaal up there, and he is a king of Tyre and the priest to Baal. So he is a dual thing. You know how in, there's only two men who have ever been a federal head in the Bible system. That would be Jesus and Adam, priest, prophet, and king. The only two who ever existed with those three titles. Ahab, you know how there's an evil trinity in the, in the tribulation? Satan doesn't invent stuff. He copies, distorts, and destroys things. So he has a king who's also a priest. Okay, That's up here, Ethbaal. What is he trying to do? This makes pretty good sense. Because you have Jerusalem, which is kind of a friend, but sometimes a foe, down to the south. But you need to fortify your position. So he goes up to the guys that have the best navy in the world. And he's going to fortify his northern border. Whose idea was that? The king we were just talking about, Ahab. So that's Ahab's idea is to fortify, nice catch, Samaria. Uh, so look at the guys that are surrounding them. Down to the south, you have the Philistines. There are five major cities. They're down right below. Where do they come from? Again, from Ham, but now it's not from Canaan, but it's from his other son, Mizraim. That's where the Philistines come from. And of course, Mizraim also goes down and founds Egypt. So from Ham is where you get the Philistines. Canaan, remember, most of their land by now, because we're after David, has already been conquered in the conquest, which would have been about 1400 BC. Edom. What's the bloodline of Edom? Esau. A lot of guys knew that one. Esau is Edom. Okay, so they're down south. So you see Israel is surrounded by people. Well, how about Moab? We're talking about Ruth. Okay, so it's from the Moabites. Who got that? That must must be Matt. All right, so we have Moab. So the daughters of Lot were a child by their father. So the quick rehash here is you have Abraham and Lot, and then Lot goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels take Lot and his two daughters out. The sons don't want to leave. They stay there, the sons-in-law. So he goes with his two daughters. Wife died, pillar of salt. They go up and live in a cave. 
And again, the daughters go the way of Cain. we got to solve this problem ourselves. We're sitting here in a cave, and we don't have any offspring. I know. Let's get the old daddy drunk, and we'll each take turns sleeping with him. That's what happens. So the oldest went first, got him drunk. The firstborn got pregnant from that night and called her son Moab, the father of the Moabites. So the Moabites exist as a result of the way of Cain and trying to pro- solve a family problem yourself and then uh, an illicit affair, father and a daughter. How about the other daughter? Well, she went in the next night. And as for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon. So there's the sons of Ammon. So you see, Moab and Ammon are both from Lot, but they're always enemies of godly line. And then you have Aram, the sons of Shem. This gives rise to Aram. So our facts had was the godly line of Shem. So of course, not everyone that came from Shem was godly. A small residue from this guy, but that's Aram. And of course, Jacob, who's my father, Israel, Jacob was called a wandering Aramean. His bloodline does not come from here. He comes from our Paxad, not Aram, but he lived in Aram, Padam Aram. So he wandered around in there before he came and settled Israel. So that just gives you a little bit of the bloodline history of all these people surrounding Jerusalem in the south. But we're talking about Ahab up in the north, and he's a smart guy, a military thinker. He's got to fortify his boundaries. So he's down here. He makes Samaria a better hill, better fortified for military. He says, you know what? They got a navy up there. They're powerful. Let me make a marriage arrangement with the daughter of Ethbaal, and that's going to help solidify this northern border of my country. Whose idea was that again? Ahab's. Number two, from a geopolitical perspective, Ahab's marriage to Jezebel makes good sense. The marriage to Jezebel makes good sense. That's what all the kings do. you got to fortify your turf. But we're talking about bloodlines in this class, right? So once you think of bloodlines, what bloodline do we really care about? We care about this one down there in Jerusalem. Who, who, wait, who's the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15? Jesus, and it's going to be the Messiah. That's the bloodline that we actually care about is that one. So I'm going to ask this question again. Whose idea was this to import Jezebel into here? There we go. It is Satan. He is always the guy behind the scenes. So Ahab might think he's making brilliant strategies for geopolitical reasons, military, solving the border. But what he's really doing is taking in a Trojan horse known as Satan. Satan's behind this the whole time because he has his eyes on Jerusalem and the bloodline to the Messiah. Spiritual warfare is fought over territory. You notice he's encroaching, encroaching, encroaching. You go to the book of Daniel and you have uh, Gabriel, a powerful angel. For three weeks, he cannot penetrate the boundary of Persia. Why? Because the prince of Persia is resisting me. That tells you there is territory, there is hierarchy of spirits. And it's not until Michael comes to help him that he can penetrate into Persia. That tells you a lot of spiritual battle. What Satan is doing is moving in and establishing a foothold here. Look how close he's getting to Jerusalem as everything he's doing. Notice the Nephilim do the same thing. This is all territorial right around Jerusalem. The Nephilim was a protective barricade. Now he's going in for a chokehold. 
Let's get back to Ahab, just to rehash. He married Jezebel. He went and served. He goes and seeks out Baal, worships Baal, and builds a home for Baal right here in Samaria, an altar at the house of Baal. He served and worshiped Baal, and he also made the Asherah. So we don't have time to go into all the female goddesses, but we'll, we're just going to cut to the quick as we look at who these beings are. But Ethbaal, look at his very name. Baal is my God. I serve Baal. Baal with me. I am with Baal. So Pastor Mike was preaching about commitment earlier today in his sermon. Where is Ethbaal's commitment? He is committed to Baal. We go to the New Testament in Mark chapter 3. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem because Jesus cast a demon out of a guy, they said, he, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Well, who's Beelzebul? There you go. He is Satan. We'll see. What is his name? Beelzebul, princely lord. Baal is lord. That's what his title means, but they'll also call him Beelzebub. That means the Lord of the Flies. As a mocking term, that's what the Jews kind of came up with, but who is Beelzebul, as they just translate this over, you know, a thousand years by the time of Christ? He, Jesus, called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan. He himself, the Alpha and the Omega, who did he say Beelzebul is? That is Satan. And he identifies Zeus as Satan in the book of Revelation as well. That's a little tricky to figure out. We'll cover that later. But he makes it exceptionally clear. Yes, he is the ruler of the demons. So the Pharisees, the scribes, these guys, as well as other people, including Satan, when they make a statement or a question with a false premise... Jesus corrects it. How does he do that? Have you not read? You don't understand the power of the resurrection. He will make a correction. Have you not read what God did here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, talking about marriage and combines both chapters in one? He will refer to Scripture to make a correction. Let's take this. Temptation. Satan. Jesus. Satan says, I will give you worship me. I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. You notice Jesus never corrects a false premise there. That is true. Why? For it has been handed to me and I can give it to whomever I wish. So when Jesus lets something go, he's telling you that is a truth statement. Satan didn't lie to Jesus. He just took a little piece out of scripture. But he didn't lie. He has legal authority to do that. Jesus never said that's a lie. Here, what did Jesus do? He supports their premise that Beelzebul is the ruler of demons. And he says, yeah, Baal is Satan. So there's various names for all these guys, but Jesus cuts right to the quick. Here's who it is. So is Zeus. Hebrews 4.13, I picked the ESV just because it says no creature is hidden. Some will say nothing in all creation, but a creature is part of creation. So I use this to say no creature is hidden from God's sight. There's no way some boogeyman can sneak in and the alpha doesn't know who he is. That's the point. There is nothing that can be hidden from the eyes of the Alpha and the Omega. He's crystal clarity as he knows which of these deities, who is what, who are they, and Satan is in charge of them all. Well, doesn't Baal have a father? Who knows what the father Baal is? Mar. Marduk. Marduk, that's the father of Baal. He's a horned dragon. That's pretty interesting. Uh, it goes back to ancient Babylon. Number three, true, false, the concept of a horned dragon is from primitive mythology. 
false. He, someone's, it's always a little, there, that's two for two. Uh, you know, you throw something to the Carlies and it's like one for seven. So for two for two is pretty good. So uh, number three, true or false, this is false. The concept of a horned dragon is from primitive mythology. Let's see. This is going to rip through some things fast just to look at a big picture. This is Revelation 12. A bunch of these pictures are from uh, Pat Marvanko Smith. She's the artist that I, I purchased these from her, but they're great ways to help teach. Revelation 12, 3. This is giving a synopsis of history. We're not going to go through all of that. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns. On his heads were seven crowns, seven diadems. What is that? A sign. So revelation is literally true. And then when there's a sign or a symbol, what does he tell you? Hey, there's a sign, a symbol. So you see the, the pregnant lady. That's going to be Israel giving birth to Jesus. Here's Satan, the red seven-headed dragon. So when you start understanding revelation, now you can read the Psalms. You can read Isaiah. You can read Job. And you know there's a difference between a multi-headed dragon and a regular dragon with one head who blows, breathes fire. That's a literal animal called Leviathan. And then the red multi-headed one, or you read in the Psalms where God breaks the multi-headed dragon. Multi-headed is who? Satan. Satan. There we go. That kid got it. That's two. All right. So the multi-headed dragon. See how kids can figure this out and adults stumble around? The multi-headed dragon is Satan. The single-headed dragon that, yes, can breathe fire in Job is who? Leviathan. And he can represent Satan, just like Satan is represented by the serpent. He takes over a serpent. So to understand Job, you can't understand Job till you understand Revelation. That's the key. But we're just signs. So now there's a battle. This is not the original fall. This is Revelation 12.9. Earlier in Revelation, Satan's fallen. His tail sweeps probably a third of the angels. This is now midpoint of the tribulation. A great dragon was thrown down. Who is it? Well, let's see. The serpent of old who is called the devil, Satan. That is this guy. There you go. Uh, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 12.9. The midpoint of the tribulation. So you look at the fall of Satan. It happens over multiple stages. Here, he is now restricted from heaven. He can never enter heaven again. Prior to that, he had access to heaven. Even though when he was cast down, we read about it in Ezekiel from his first fall, he still had access to heaven. Here he doesn't, and he's going to be restricted to earth, and he knows his time is short. Very interestingly, that verse is the exact middle verse of the book of Revelation. And it's the midpoint of the tribulation. So there's an angel, a big dude with a chain. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, heaven, holding the key to the abyss with a great chain in his hand. And you have to understand more than we can go in today of why he can throw Satan in the abyss. This angel is not stronger than Satan. No angel is. There's reasons he has it for authority from God. He takes who? That multi-headed dragon, that kid. There we go. You're going to, I mean, this kid's got it. Um, and he, the angel, laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand. You notice there's no escape who that guy is? Bound him for a thousand years. This is during the kingdom. Threw him into the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over him, so he would not deceive the nations any longer. Do you see the nations being deceived by Satan now? Obviously, we are not in the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. The kingdom is yet to occur. It'll be a thousand-year period of time. We're not in the kingdom now. If we were, how come Satan is out deceiving people when during the kingdom he's supposed to be locked in the abyss? See, it's not complicated, but we make it complicated by allegorizing books, especially Revelation. And then he will be led out, and he's going to lead people against 
God against Jesus like the sand of the seashore. He will be in the abyss until the thousand years are complete. After that, he must be released for a short time. So that's your border security issue. And notice if you're trying to make your border security by being influenced by Satan, what you thought was a military move and made good sense, you're actually killing yourself with what you're doing by bringing Baal, Satan, right into your midst. So now we're going to look at the showdown, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I always like a good UFC fight. Because how many guys win the fight? One. Yeah, one guy's standing, one guy's knocked out. Pretty simple, pretty clear. So let's look at this showdown between the prophets of Baal and God. First Kings 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, Ahab speaking to the prophet, is this you, prophet of God, the troubler of Israel? Because they've had a famine for three years. You're the problem. Just like Adam, the woman you gave me. Look, we'll blame God and God's spokesman for our own problems. Ahab is the problem. Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel. You and your father's house, the house of Omri, have troubled Israel. Because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And notice here it's even plural. There's multiple things. With You have Artemis in the New Testament. Multiple places call her by different names. It's all Athena. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab saying, is this you, you piece of garbage, you that are troubling Israel? Number four, the way of Cain. Ahab is entrenched in the way of Cain. He's embracing Baal worship, Satan worship. The way of Cain distorts the ability to discern good from evil. So he's calling the prophet of God the troublemaker. And then you look down here. All these 850 prophets, well, who's sponsoring them? Jezebel, the king and the queen. So here you have state-sponsored Satan worship. Hope you have to dig for that one. So here's our timeline. We're looking at King Omri, who's followed by his son Ahab. They're all Jews. They're all Israelites now. That's the Samaritans. But they go up north to Ethbaal, consciously grab on to Baal, and import Baal worship down into Samaria. So then we're focusing now on Ahab. So on the good side, down in the south, you have Judah. That's the holy line. And where does it go to? goes to Jesus, the Messiah. Now, we're going to put that over here. Israel in the north, that is Samaria. Omri built Samaria, and then his son Ahab is in the line. And they go, outside of having nothing to do with anything from Israel, they go up to Tyre, who's not related from Abraham. And they say, you know what? I'm going to take your daughter because you've got a powerful military. You've got the the ships. And we're going to take Jezebel. We're going to go from Tyre and Baal worship. Look at their names. They're named after Baal. So they have these prophets, and they're dancing around their altar. So we have this big showdown in 1 Kings 18. Then they, the prophets of Baal, took the ox, which is given to them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. They leaped about the altar which they had made. It came about at noon. Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god, a little g-god, Either he's occupied or gone aside or on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and you just need to wake him up, get louder. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom. That means they'd done this all the time, with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. And you notice they're not cutting themselves with knives. They're using full-fledged swords. This is a violent deal. 
When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now, were these guys stupid? Well, uh, they would be smart, but not wise. So they wouldn't be stupid, they're foolish. So wisdom is putting, seeing things the way God does. Knowledge is knowing facts. These guys had a lot of knowledge, but no wisdom. Because what is one of the chief powers that Satan has, Zeus has it, all these deities do? They can control fire from heaven. Satan does it twice. He does it in Job, he does it again in Revelation. That's what's recorded in Scripture. So I know I would bet money that these guys had a showdown with fire. That's our guy. That's our turf. Baal can control fire. We've seen it. I bet they had seen it. They relished the chance for this confrontation. But nothing happened. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. Number five, the problem with Baal worship is that the object of worship is not sovereign. The problem with Baal worship is that the object of the worship is not sovereign. So yes, Satan has the power to control disease, to control militaries, to influence the minds of kings. He has the power to control weather, including lightning and fire from the sky. That's part of his tool belt. But remember in Colossians, all things, specifically the spirit world, is actively upheld. He wasn't wound up and let go. Oh, shoot, Satan went rogue. Satan, the highest of any spiritual being, is dependent on the active upholding of the word of Jesus Christ. So Jesus simply upholds him less. His power just, it's not even putting a leash on him. It's just, how much more do you want me to go, Beelzebub, before you disintegrate? He can't do anything. God can so easily put him in the timeout corner where he can't respond to the gushing of blood by his followers. God then enters into the fray. At the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Oh Lord, look at his humility. God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, today let it be known that you are God, not this imported Baal worship. And that I am your servant. It's not about me. I'm your servant. I have done all these things at your word. I've commanded, I've been commanded to do this. I don't necessarily think it's safe, but that's what I'm going to do. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the waters. They poured all these buckets of water, big trench and everything. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What was consumed? Everything, including the stones. Wow. And the dust. It's hard to burn dust. Every time I make a burn pile, the dust seems to stay there. Right? And I've never been able to burn a rock. I've actually tried to burn big stones. I've got a flamethrower. And I can't burn a stone. I can kind of make it charred, but I can't burn it. That's a pretty powerful flame. Number six, the sovereign God invites a challenge from the proud. We're just going to quickly refer back to Leviathan in Job, the king of all who are proud. Who do you think that represents? Of course, it's Satan. So, God, by saying, who can turn my word back, is inviting a challenge from the king of pride, which is Satan. 
Then Elijah said to them, all the people of Israel, seize the prophets of Baal. There's 850 of them. Seize them. Do not let one of them escape. So the people seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and they slew them there. So that was the showdown. Now we're going to go to the vineyard as you have Elijah working with Ahab. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel. Why do you think he's called a Jezreelite? That's where he lives in Jezreel. Beside the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, said, hey, you've got a nice vineyard. Why don't you give that to me that I might have it for a vegetable garden because it's close beside my house. I will give you a better garden in its place. Or, if you like, I'll pay for it with money. Number seven. On the surface, Ahab offers a fair business proposition to Naboth. On the surface, that looks fair. But, and I always like to stay on a but or if, because it makes you think a little bit, but Naboth responded to the king and said, no, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. What does Naboth understand? God is sovereign over territory and over land and who gets what and when they get it. And this is our family given by the sovereign God. Even the king, it is not for you, not for me to give it to you. So Ahab came to his house and he pouts. Solon and vexed. You'll see this is a character trait of Ahab. Because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for uh, Naboth had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab lays down on his bed, turns his face away, and doesn't eat food. He's pouting. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and says, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So Jezebel says, because, or I mean, he's telling Jezebel, well, I'm pouting because I spoke with Naboth and I said, hey, either sell it to me uh, or I'll give you more property for it. But this Naboth guy said, I won't give you my vineyard. (laughs) I want it. Jezebel, his wife said, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will. God makes I will statements, so does Satan. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Do you now reign over Israel? So his father Omri, remember, survived a civil war, usurped the throne, was never anointed by a prophet. In God's system, you have a prophet who is over the king because he anoints the king. The king is not sovereign by himself. He's subordinate to God. But what is Jezebel saying? Are you not the king? We don't care about this anointment garbage. You are the king. You are sovereign. Nobody is sovereign over you, not even the law of God. Number eight, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him by the Father. Several references there. Here's one, and that concept is being challenged by the priestess of Baal. So she's got a solution. You know what? She writes a letter down to the dudes in Jezreel say, hey, just make a lie that Naboth cursed God and stone him and kill him. And so they do. They get rid of the problem called Naboth. And when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard and take possession of it. Well, who's the local guy in charge of who owns the property? The guy's in charge of Jezreel. But who wrote them the letter? People aren't all that worried about Ahab. It's Jezebel. 
And Jezebel had wrote the letter. These dudes like, oof, we know we don't have the authority to give a guy's private property even to the king, but this is Jezebel we're dealing with. And so they just go right along with it because it's Jezebel. So now we go to Elijah. God says to Elijah, you, Elijah, shall speak to him, Ahab, and say, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? You shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord. In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, even yours. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O man? That's the second time, you troublemaker of Israel. Elijah said, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, Ahab is saying, you're the problem. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and I will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. We'll talk about that next week. All the male descendants of Ahab are now going to be extinguished because he took the vineyard of Naboth. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. God's punishment is every male will be killed that belongs to Ahab. Why? Because Jezebel, his wife, is the one pulling the strings. Number nine, Jezebel incited Ahab to do evil. Jezebel incited Ahab to do evil. But Ahab humbled himself, and God sees that, and God says to uh, uh, Elijah, Elijah, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? All his male offspring are going to die, but because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring that evil in his days, but it will be in the, on his house in his son's days after he is dead. So now we're going to go to Ahab. His sons are all going to be destroyed. That will be next week. But now it's going to be his personal death is foretold. So again, we have Aram up here. comes from uh, Shem. And one of their kings takes these Aramean tribes and these guys, and they're going to go up uh, to a place called Aphek. There's multiple Aphek's. One is down here when, they, when the Philistines go in to kill Saul. Uh, but here, this Aphek is on this side of the river, and those are going up to Aphek. At the turn of the year, Ben-Hadad mustered, that's the king of Aram, mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. The sons of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went out to meet them. The sons of Israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Arameans filled the country. Then a man of God, this is not Elisha, it's a different guy, uh, came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said, The Lord, Yahweh, is a God of the mountains, he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I, God, will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know, Ahab, that I am the Lord." So did it have anything to do with Ahab's righteousness? That's the king here. Mm-mm. He never does anything righteous that I'm aware of. That's not because of you, Ahab, but the year before, so I'm kind of picking here because of time. We can't walk through it all. The year before, Ben-Hadad came and his dudes came. They got chariots. That's the big power unit of the guys from Aram. Israel has no chariots. They weren't even supposed to have horses. But they came in, and the year before... They fought on the hillside in the mountains. And so the Arameans said, well, we got beat, but that's because the Lord, Yahweh, is a God of the mountains, and our chariots aren't very good on the hillside and mountains. And so we're going to come next time and fight in the valleys and the plains. When you read the various things, they're going to go on the plains. 
It's be, so God is saying, it's not about you, Ahab, but the Arameans have said, I, Yahweh, am limited to the mountains. Because of that statement, I am going to demolish them and you will get the great victory. But it's not because a darn thing you did. So they camped over one against one another seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the sons of Israel killed of the Arameans a 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. Pretty big victory. Well, the rest of the guys from Aram fled to Aphek into the city. It's a walled city. But then the wall fell down on 27,000. I mean, think you're right. Well, at least we got a walled city to retreat to. Oh, dadgummit. Not only is it not walled anymore, but the wall killed a bunch of us. And so Ben-Hadad, he's in charge of Aram. He also fled, came into the city, into an inner chamber. But Ahab captures him and shows mercy. He spares him his life. But the prophet says to him, thus says the Lord, you thought you were showing mercy, you thought on your own, but because you have let go out of your hand, Ben-Hadad, the man who I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life will be forfeit for his, your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and vexed, pouting again. Now he was just been told, God gave you this victory, God had said, this king needs to die. You didn't kill him. You thought it was mercy. That's not mercy. God sovereignly told you to kill him. The man who God devoted to destruction. Number 10. God sentenced Ahab to death because he failed to execute Ben-Hadad. So the calamity of all of his male offspring, that's still going to happen, but not in his life and theirs. Now his life is going to end because he failed to execute a man that God said it's now time to end his life. And he's pouting. So think when you get chastised by God. Do we pout? Do we complain? Did the ref make a bad call? Maybe we should humble ourselves and say, Lord, why? Help me to see what you would have me do. But Ahab never humbles himself, never asks for forgiveness. He is entrenched in the way of Cain. He rejects the authority of God. That is the way of Cain. Notice King Saul, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. King Saul did the same principle. He didn't kill things that God told him to kill. That was going back to the Amalekites, way back at the time of Moses, 400 years before the Exodus. Here we have 1 Samuel now, at the time of Samuel, telling Saul, go out and strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has, do not spare. Look, man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. And then Samuel, the, the prophet, tells Saul this is exactly fulfilling what God wrote back here and it is now sovereignly decreed this is time to do it. Do not spare. Saul spared. He was ordered to commit genocide and this throws people for a loop. God is sovereign. Anyone's life or death is in the hands of God. Satan in the temptation wants us to try to grab something that is fundamentally not true. Ye shall be as gods. You are not a god. You can't be a god. The essence of the temptation, you shall determine for yourself what is right, what is wrong. You are not able, even when you are commanded sovereignly by God to commit genocide, it's not up to you to weigh if you think that is proper or not. Samuel said, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Who are you? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
The Lord hath made of one blood, that's Adam, one blood, all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. I use this King James just because it's one blood. That's literally what the word means. And God hath determined their times before. He has pre-appointed who will live when and where. So when you go to the Exodus and they go into the conquest, at the beginning when they were supposed to go in, there was three men, Joshua, Caleb, Moses. They understood. They understood who the Nephilim were. They understood the giants. They understood the situation. And they said this. They knew what God told Abraham. It will be 400 years, and then you will go. Why? For the sins of the Amorites. Amorites are not Rephium, but they contain some Rephium. Their sins are not yet complete. It'll be 400 years. Now you go 400 years later, those three men, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, they said it is now time to enter the land. Why? They're specifically talking about the giants. Their protection from God has now sovereignly been removed. The sins of the Amorites have filled their full measure, and it's time to exterminate them. They understood that. The evil spies rejected that. That's understanding God determines when you go where. The way of Cain rejects that. And we all fall prey to this. We say, yeah, but that Old Testament Yahweh is bloodthirsty. You know, that's the way of Cain. Do not fall into the propaganda of the way of Cain and think for a minute any of us have to try to theologically defend anything that God did. He never asks us to do that. He gives orders and gives commands. It's the way of Cain that says he is bloodthirsty. Simplest thing on earth to prove. We're going to go to Greek mythology. What is Cainius in the Greek EUS? That is the way of the way of Cain. And this is just brief review, but the way of Cain pounded into the ground at what? What event is this? Big Ark? The flood, there we go. The flood destroys the way of Cain, right? It's now pounded into the ground. That's what Greek myth is talking about. But Canius, the way of Cain, it's going to revive. And here we have Athena being born for the way of Cain, Hephaestus, uh, the oldest son. So it goes from Cain, but also Tubal-Cain. And you notice she is armed as she comes out of the head of Zeus. It's his idea, this Athanatos, Athena cannot die. See to the woman, Parthenos, always virgin. There will be no seed of the woman. That's the heart and soul of Greek mythology. And here you have Cain, Hephaestus. You have Erichthonios, the reborn seed of Hephaestus that went into the ground, pounded in at the flood, but now it's reborn through the help of Athena. And who's the god of war? Ares. Uh, so we have Ares, the god of war. Oh, that was Campbell. I gave that to Coach Rice. That's a That's a welfare check, Coach. So... Ares, this is the way of Cain that says, remember the way of Cain, that's Greek mythology, told from the perspective of the way of Cain, not from the way of Seth. Same history, different perspective. Who is Ares? That is Seth. That is the line of God. What is he? He's the god of war. He is a bloodthirsty fool. The gods of the Parthenon don't like Ares, and he is bloodthirsty. I've heard that about Yahweh, haven't you? Athena, through her wisdom, always outwits Ares. And that's the Battle of Troy where she beats him. So here we're going to get back to Ahab. My whole point there is don't fall prey to the propaganda of the way of Cain and think God is bloodthirsty. Understand God is sovereign. Big difference. So now, pouting old Ahab, he's up here in Israel at Samaria, and he realizes that the people of Aram have entrenched. This is not the border. There was 
an inheritance for Israel over here, but they don't have it. So he said, hey, Jehoshaphat, you're the godly king down there in Jerusalem. Come help me out. We're going to go up here, take this back. The king of Israel, Ahab, said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of Aram? It's us from way back and we haven't reestablished control of it. And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle? And Jehoshaphat said, yes, I am as you are, my people as your people, and we shouldn't even have horses, but I'm violating the God, law of God and having horses. Yes, we are all with you. So they're going to go together. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said, now Jehoshaphat is a godly king. He does some mistakes, but he's overall does pretty good. He said to the king of Israel, whoa, pump the brakes. Please inquire first. Don't rush into the battle. Please inquire, is this the will of God? I know that's our inheritance. I know the location. Is this the right time? He's trying to make sure he's doing it under the authority of God. Much different than the way of Cain that says, I'm doing it on my own. Then the king of Israel, Ahab, gathered the prophets together. Again, he's rebuilt a bunch of his prophets. About four, he loves the number 400, about 400, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? They said, go up, the Lord will give it to the hand of the king. Go. But Jehoshaphat pumped the brakes again. The guy in the south, line of Judah, line of the Messiah. He's like, wait a minute, is there not a prophet of the Lord here? I think he smells a rat. He looks around, these dudes are on your payroll. Of course they're telling you what you want to hear. That's a crappy cabinet you've just assembled. You've paying for them. Let's have an independent voice. Oh, that might help us. The truth, what is real? Jehoshaphat understands God is truth. He is here. He doesn't move. You don't stand over here and say, you know what? Let's pretend it's God giving us a blessing. We need to move under here and be subordinate to God. Jehoshaphat understood that. Ahab didn't. The king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Yes, there is one man whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. He does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Micaiah, the son of Imlus. You've had Elijah, you got Elisha. Here's Micaiah. There's more than one. But he's saying, I like to stand here and do it my way, and he keeps trying to pull me over there, so that's evil, and I hate him. I'm seeing it from the perspective of the way of Cain. He never says good concerning me because I want to put my own money into the machine and control what comes out on my terms. God is a vending machine and my prophets are telling me that. That's where I am in control of the little pet lion rather than the big lion. But Jehoshaphat said the king shouldn't say so. All the prophets were prophesying thus saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead, go prosper. The Lord will give it to the hand of the king. Then the messenger went to summon Micaiah, the prophet of God, spoke to Micaiah saying, hey, dude, listen, all 400 of them are saying the same thing, uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like one of them. Speak favorably to the king. Let's understand what's going on. He's the guy with the political power. And I'm skipping some verses because Micaiah basically says, I can only say what God tells me. And so Micaiah then says in front of the king, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain. Like sheep with no shepherd, the shepherd has been killed. That's you, Ahab. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let them return each to his house in peace. Now, Micaiah goes on and he adds some very interesting things to what he's telling Ahab. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I, Micaiah, saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. 
Why is Ahab going to die? From what? Because it's, it's already been prophesied, right? So his sons were going to die. He is going to die because he didn't kill Ben-Hadad when God told him he should. It is now certain you are going to die because you didn't execute Ben-Hadad, who I gave to you. You will die. That is what's going to happen. The Lord asked this question. Various people up in this throne room are saying this, saying that. Then a spirit comes forward, stood before and said, I will entice him. It's an evil spirit. Yes, they have access. Remember, it's not till the midpoint of tribulation where Satan no longer has access to heaven. The Lord said to him, to the evil spirit, how? The evil spirit said, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And then God said, you are to entice him and prevail. Go and do so. Number 11, God demonstrates full control or sovereignty over evil spirits as he works out his plan. God demonstrates full control or sovereignty over evil spirits as he works out his plan. And this is interesting with spirits and angels. The Sadducees don't believe there's either, but notice there's different categories. Angels, there's fallen angels, there's spirits. We go back to Micaiah. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has proclaimed disaster against you, Ahab. You are dying. So we've got the destruction of every male in your line. That's coming in your son's life, but your life is now going to end because you didn't execute Ben-Hadad. And you notice he knows clearly those are your prophets. Those are not the prophets of Yahweh. They're on your payroll. You're bankrolling them. You think you're sovereign. You're following the way of Cain, worshiping Baal, also known as Satan. There's disaster coming your way. Disaster? I don't believe in disaster. I'm the king. I'm Ahab. I belong to the way of Cain. I'm Athena. I'm Athanatos. I can't be killed. I'm just simply going to think because I'm smart. I'm brilliant. I'm going to connect the dots on my own. I'm not going to submit myself to God. I'm going to do it my own. And I've got a plan. What was his plan? This is hilarious. They're going to war. The king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat down there, the godly one, okay, he must have known I might be in trouble. Maybe I'm going to die, but I've figured out I will disguise myself and go into the battle. But you, Jehoshaphat, put your royal robes on. So the king of Israel disguised himself as he went into battle. Hey, Jehoshaphat, you get your gear on so everyone can see you from a mile away. You're wearing the royal robes. But as for me, well, you know, I'm going to sneak around. What kind of a... Hey, don't worry. Coach, I got your back. What? You don't go to battle with a dude like this. But Josephat does. Now, the king of Aram had commanded his 32 chariot captains of his chariots, saying, don't fight with anyone small or great, but only with the king Ahab, because he's the guy behind trying to come take our land. But, of course, it was supposed to be Israel's land. So when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, the dude with the robes, they're like, hey, that's the king of Israel. They turned aside to fight against him. But Jehoshaphat, the godly one, cries out, and look, the Lord helped him. God diverted. So he's over here, all these chariots, that's powerful weaponry of the day. They are going after him. He cries out for help. God sovereignly helps him, and they don't kill him. When the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. How did this disguise work? Not too good, because who's sovereign? 
That's right. God is sovereign. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint in the armor. He's wounded but not dead yet. He said to the driver's chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight. I'm severely wounded. He sits there and bleeds out all day. Painful death. Random. There is one religious system that thrives on random. That's evolution. You cannot find random in the book of Scripture because God is sovereign. You cannot have random and sovereign. Random has no power. But this is hilarious. God is saying, I am sovereign over what even a man thinks to be random. So there's all the chariots chasing the dude with the robes. There's Ahab hiding in his ghillie suit amongst all the other dudes. Some guy, hey, Bob, check this out. I'm a no-look shot. Bang, look at that. Shoots an arrow. And it goes right between his arms. And get, that's not random, folks. That's a sovereign guy. I think it's hilarious. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves. That's not a very clean area. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke. What word was that? Telling Elijah to tell Ahab, you, Ahab, have murdered and taken possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. So he dies in battle, but gets his blood licked back in Samaria. Twelve, God is sovereign, and his eternal word never returns to him void. So we looked at the house of Omri, and of course we looked at Ahab, and here's our summary. Ahab thinks he's smart. He builds border security going up to Ethbaal and takes the wife Jezebel, thinking he's stabilizing his northern front, but what he's really doing is taking in Baal worship, probably thinking that's going to help him, but that's a big Trojan horse that ends up destroying Israel. Then we have the showdown with the prophets of Baal. I believe that those guys thought they were fighting a home turf battle with fire coming down to burn an offering because Satan does have that power, but he is not sovereign and he was put in the timeout chair and God totally demonstrated superiority. Then we see the vineyard. It's all about private property and even the king is subordinate to the law, but not in Baal worship. They were never even anointed. He was a usurper. They didn't follow the authority chain. I will do it my own way. And then his doom is foretold because don't ever let yourself think the Old Testament God is a bloodthirsty God. That's exactly what the way of Cain does to Seth. And it's right through their mythology. You just look at Ares. God is not bloodthirsty. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants people to freely choose him, but the way of Cain rejects him, and there is only one option, and that is death. So let's uh, pray, uh, and we'll move out for our day. Dear Lord, I just thank you for loving us. Thank you that you give us the word of truth. Help us as we study your word to make sure we always check ourselves uh, to put our thoughts in line with your thoughts and never sit in judgment over you. Thank you for giving us eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.